Hello and welcome to a Backtracker History Show podcast special. My name is Alice and I'm here to ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Normally, the podcast is specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show produced in Bristol, England, but not this time. So here's a tale from the past that I found absolutely fascinating. So get yourself settled and listen to the bizarre story of the wine coop murder. This episode's event takes place in the year 1933. But what else happened that year? Well, on January 5th, construction of the Golden Gate Bridge begins in San Francisco Bay. On March 2nd, the original film version of King Kong, starring Fay Ray, premieres at Radio City Music Hall and the RKO Roxy Theatre in New York City. On May 8th, Mohandas Gandhi begins a three-week hunger strike because of the mistreatment of the lower castes. And on May the 27th, Chicago hosted its second World's Fair. It was called a Century of Progress International Exposition. The fair was situated on 424 acres near the museum campus, and almost the entire fairground was filled in Lake Shore. According to the promotional material of the time, the exposition was within a day's ride of 75% of the United States population. Over the course of the fair's 1933-1934 run, the World's Fair welcomed over 39 million visitors from Chicagoland and beyond, breaking World's Fair's attendance records. 1933 may seem like an odd choice of year for a fair called A Century of Progress, but the name comes from the fair coinciding with the celebration of the centennial of the founding of Chicago. In the 40 years since the Columbian Exposition, also hosted in Chicago, a lot had changed in the city and in the rest of the world. In the intervening years, World War I and the Great Depression shaped society in new ways, and the World's Fair reflected some of the new attitudes and changes. Progress was the unifying theme of the World's Fair, and a century of progress offered a new idea of progress. Rather than focus on and put faith in people to create a better world, the fair's organisers looked to technological innovations as progress. But the fair wasn't the only event to bring international media attention to Chicago. Earl Winecoop, aged 27, was reported to have been in Chicago not more than a few hours before and probably during the time his pretty wife, Rita, 23, was killed in his mother's home at 346 West Monroe Street an old house of red brick, grimy with years of soot. His mother was Dr Alice Winecoop, aged 62, widow of Dr Frank Winecoop and sister-in-law of two other doctors, as well as being the mother to Dr Catherine Winecoop, aged 24. Dr Alice was a well-respected physician, professor, feminist, civic leader and educator in child hygiene. The initial reporting of the discovery was patchy at best, but it was discovered that the victim had been chloroformed before being shot. Police Lieutenant Charles Peterson said, 
I found a cloth over in the victim's mouth. There was no chlorophyll on the cloth, but there was a bottle of it nearby. The victim was Rita Winecoop, a talented violinist and artist who was found in the basement of the 16-room home. There was a single bullet wound beneath her left shoulder blade, fired through the heart. Nearby lay a pistol, from which three shots had been fired. The young woman's clothing was piled neatly on a chair. But it was where the body was found that was also strange. On an operating table, face downward, completely nude, and wrapped in a blanket. This murder had all the elements of a detective mystery thriller, like those popular at the time, including a mysterious telegram, scratches that looked like they were made by fingernails on the victim's face, and reports that a drug addict had frequently been hired to do odd jobs around the property the last of which was later investigated and cleared, even though the man in question was arrested for a very short period of time. The husband, Earl Winecoop, was reported to be en route to Arizona with a friend, Stanley Young, to take advertising photographs of the Grand Canyon. An hour before the body was found, Dr Winecoop received a telegram from Peoria that read, Stanley has domestic difficulties starting home tonight it was signed with the initial e and had been received at the house by miss hennessy at 7:55 in the afternoon w russell obanian west union messenger had delivered it previously at 4:27 in the afternoon john brennock another messenger had called with it he had no response when he rang the doorbell, although he had seen lights burning in the basement and on the first floor. Word of the Week Due to the fact that our story this week takes place in Chicago, I decided to look up Chicago slang. So... For this week's Word of the Week, I give you... Front Room. Now, this is a Chicago slang word that sounds pretty much exactly what it is. It's the front room of a house, usually where families keep their nicest furniture. This term is extremely popular in Chicago, seeing as traditional homes here are constructed in such a way that nearly every house has a front room off the main entryway. Now, if any of you guys can tell me whether this is true or not, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. Now back to our story with another damning piece of information that the good Dr. Alice Winecoop had taken out a $5,000 insurance policy on her daughter-in-law only a week before, paying the first premium with her own money and naming herself as the beneficiary. The policy carried a double indemnity clause, which, in the event of Rita's violent death, would pay the good doctor £10,000. When questioned, the neighbours were quick to recall 
that there had been four other deaths within the Winecoop mansion in the previous four years. The first of these deaths was the woman's husband, Dr Frank Winecoop, a man of apparently strong constitution who suddenly became sick and died in the autumn of 1929. The second was an adopted daughter, Mary Louise, who died in 1930. The adoption occurred when, back in 1910, at the peak of her career, Dr Winecoop had addressed the Mothers' Congress and Parent-Teachers' Association Convention at Rockford and urged that every family adopt one child, as she had done, as an act of humanitarianism and a duty towards the race. This was in reply to a widely published statement by Olive Schreiner, novelist who was much in vogue then, that one child for each family was sufficient. Dr Winecoop, for her speech, received considerable publicity, a picture of the then-beautiful woman physician and her four curly-haired children being published in the newspapers. The third death was that of Miss Catherine Porter, a spinster, the same age as the doctor, who was being treated for heart disease and cancer. The neighbour said that she had been sharing a $2,000 bank account with Dr Winecoop. The fourth death was that of the 85-year-old father of Miss Enid Hennessy, a teacher who was a lodger at the mansion. Dr Winecoop was interrogated by Captain John Steege, but kept a placid, unemotional attitude to the whole ordeal. Her story was that she had been downtown all of the Tuesday afternoon, returned home for evening dinner and found her daughter and Lord dead on the operating table in the basement at about 8.30pm, with evidence her office had been ransacked. She said that she had always been fond of Rita and loved her very much, as much as the girl's husband, and she had procured the insurance as a way of persuading Rita that, as she had passed the insurance company's medical examination, she shouldn't worry about her health, which had previously been delicate. The captain replied that he couldn't understand why, after finding the body as well as six dollars missing from her office, the first thing she did was call her daughter from the county hospital, where she was working, as well as an undertaker, Thomas James Ahern, from a nearby mortuary. When the undertaker arrived at the house, he asked to see the body and was led down a flight of steps into the doctor's basement office. In the grim, old-fashioned operating room, on an antique operating table cushioned with warm black leather, he saw the blanketed figure of a pretty red-haired girl. He asked the doctor if she'd call the police. She said she hadn't and didn't want any publicity. The undertaker declared that this was obviously a murder and went upstairs to call the police. This was an hour and a half after the initial discovery. Dr Winecoop said her theory was that Rita had been killed by some moron who attempted to attack her. She said the murdered woman and her son were very much in love and had been living with her since their wedding four years before. Earl, though, had been living in Beverly Hills since the previous October the 16th, but he did call his wife every day. The coroner's report said that there were no holes in the victim's clothes and that first-degree powder burns surrounding the opening of the wounds established that she had been murdered with the gun pressed to her flesh whilst naked. The report also stated the seared tissue around the girl's mouth indicated chloroform had been applied there shortly before her death. Captain Steege said, Every circumstance indicated that the girl was killed by someone in whom she had confidence. 
She had taken off her clothes, probably as she sat on the edge of the operating table, and dropped them at her feet. She had then lain back as if submitting to an examination. While she was in that position, apparently the killer placed her under anesthetic, turned her halfway on her face, and fired the shot into her back at a point where it struck her heart and caused instant death. Finally, the killer, in an apparent fit of remorse, tried to staunch the blood which was flowing from her mouth, and seeing she was dead, wrapped the body in a blanket. During the initial search of the property, under a pile of other papers in Dr. Winecoop's bedroom on the second floor of the gloomy old house, police found a letter in feminine handwriting. They were looking for evidence which might shed light on Rita's life, although Dr. Winecoop assured them that Rita and Earl had lived happily together with her since their marriage in 1929. It appeared to be a love letter, and the police considered that Rita might have had an admirer that her mother-in-law didn't know. Dated Sunday night and written in pencil, the letter read, Precious, I'm choked. You are gone. You have called me up and after ten minutes or so, I called and called. No answer. Maybe you are sleeping. You need to be. But I want to hear your voice again tonight. I would give anything I have to spend an hour in real talk with you tonight. And I cannot. Good night. It was not until the next day that Dr. Winecoop revealed that the mysterious letter was written by her to Earl, her son. She said with flashing eyes that it was a love letter from a mother to her son. Later, psychiatrists were to find it significant, and at least one declared it indicated a possible Oedipus complex, or at any rate, an exaggerated maternal feeling. Hi there, I'm Kyle Sutton. I'm Trisha Campbell. And we're the hosts of My Drunk Movie Theater. Join us every week as we go through the silly things that we wind up getting up to at our job working at a local multiplex. We also talk about all the current events that are happening in the movie world that affect us and affect you as the viewers. Trisha? We also get off topic quite a bit more rambles, so there's that too. Yeah, well, you know, alcohol does that to you. So hit the subscribe button. You can follow us to listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, almost anywhere that your podcasts are available. During the investigation, Rita's father, Burdine Gardner, a grain broker of Indianapolis, was questioned. He said that he was against the marriage to Earl from the very start, and he hadn't heard from his daughter since the previous summer. When he had first been notified by the police about Rita's death, he then mentioned a strange message he'd received from Dr. Winecoop, asking him to say that his daughter suffered from tuberculosis and that the disease might have caused her death. Earl had said during a questioning session with both himself and his mother that... I was unhappy in my married life. Retta and I had not lived together as man and wife for years. She was sickly, and I considered her my mental inferior. During the course of that particular interrogation, it became clear which way the evidence was leading. And seeing this, Earl declared, I'll sign an ironclad confession to save the one I suspect. When a reporter had told Dr. Winecoop that her son had admitted to the crime, she apparently clasped her hands together with her eyes filling with tears 
exclaiming that this was the happiest moment of her life. Police interpreted this to mean that she was happy because she thought Earl had sacrificed himself in the belief he was saving her. During another round of questioning, the Inquisitors insinuated that Earl might be the accused, but the good doctor remained silent. And as the morning wore on, they tried a gentle attack. Captain Steege suggested that she might have had Rita undressed, and that perhaps she was examining her when someone else came in and fired that shot. During a break, when she was left alone with Dr Harry A. Hoffman, a director of the Criminal Court Behaviour Clinic, she was lying down in the captain's office when Captain Steed returned. He asked her if she had had breakfast and she said she hadn't, so he ordered a coffee. She then asked him what would happen if she told her story. And he said, I don't want a story. I just want the truth. And then she said, Close the door and don't let anyone in. She then grabbed his arm and said, Retta was going downtown to get some sheet music. She complained of abdominal pains and and I said that now would be an ideal time to have a pelvic examination. Retta disrobed and got on the operating table complaining of pain. I said the pain would be relieved with a whiff of chloroform, so I handed Retta the bottle and Retta kept using the chloroform. Pretty soon I noticed that Retta wasn't breathing. I saw that her pupils were dilated and using a stethoscope I found no heart or pulse action. So I took the gun from the desk in my office and I turned the girl so she lay on her left side. I fired from a distance of six inches, then covered the body with a blanket. I got myself dressed and went out the basement door, walked down Madison Street, and I bought some stamps in one place. When asked why she did it, she replied, to save the poor dear. So now, Dr. Alice Winecoop has given two different versions of events. One stating that she found the body and a wild marauder must have committed the crime, and a second that Rita died of an overdose while she was trying to help her. Whilst doing the research for this story, I came across another which really interested me. It was titled, Woman Named as U.S. Judge, First in History. Judge Allen Called a Good Scout. It was about how President Roosevelt appointed Florence E. Allen of Cleveland as federal judge in the Circuit Court of Appeals. She was the first woman ever to be named to the federal bench. At the time, she was on the bench of the Ohio State Supreme Court and was endorsed for the new federal position by Senator Robert Bulkley of Ohio. The Circuit Court of Appeals to which the President elevated her is second in ranking only to the Supreme Court of the United States. At 50 years old, she had shattered many precedents. She was the first woman assistant county prosecutor in Ohio, the first woman elected to the Court of Common Pleas in that state, and the first woman to sit on the bench of a state Supreme Court. Miss Allen was admitted to the bar 20 years previously and attained considerable prominence almost immediately through her fight for the women of East Cleveland, whose votes had been declared illegal. Later, she was selected by the Cleveland Street Railway Workers' Union to arbitrate an industrial dispute. 
She was a native of Salt Lake City and a former newspaper woman, having served as foreign correspondent and was on the editorial staff of a Cleveland paper. Florence Allen had long been known as an able jurist, a profound student and an ardent suffragist, but her colleagues on the Ohio Supreme Court compliment all these accomplishments by saying that she was a good scout. And now, back to our story. The jury returned a verdict that Rita died of shock and hemorrhage from a bullet fired in her back and recommended that Dr Winecube be held to the grand jury on a murder charge. The case began in court on the 15th of January 1934 and as the hearing proceeded, Dr Winecube suffered five heart attacks but the climax came as she collapsed after Dr Hoffman's testimony regarding her statement admitting to murder. Dr Winecoop's collapse resulted in a mistrial, and a month later, on February the 19th, she began another trial. She had just had her 63rd birthday in jail on February the 1st, and she was brought into court in a wheelchair as she was so weak. The information about the insurance policy came up as well as the fact that two other insurance companies had declined her request for a policy. Not surprisingly, the jury required only a few minutes to declare a guilty verdict. Later, Dr Alice Winecoop was confined to hospital in Dwight, Illinois, where she was found to be suffering from hypertension, arteriosclerosis and pulmonary tuberculosis. She was incarcerated for 14 years at the Oakdale Reformatory for Women in Dwight, Illinois, where, in a later news article on the prison, she was described as the matriarch. She was a tired, sick old woman who did a great deal of knitting for the soldiers during the war. She would constantly protest her innocence by saying, My principal hope was that the guilty person, whoever he or she might be, would succumb to qualms of conscience and exonerate me. Dr. Winecoop was released on December the 29th, 1947, for good behaviour. After a brief hospitalisation, she was moved to Burnside Rest Home in Chicago, where she lived anonymously and died at the age of 84 on July the 4th, 1955. Thank you. News just in. A cement mixer has collided with prison van on the M4 Bath Junction. Motorists are asked to be on the lookout for 16 hardened criminals. Earl Winecoop, the husband of the murdered victim, was tall, well-built, auburn-haired and well-dressed, and returned to Chicago on the Thursday morning. He first visited the mortuary and viewed the body of his wife, but Earl was not the honest-to-goodness boy next door that he tried to portray. Unhesitantly, he admitted keeping company with other women, and a friend declared that he had a notebook with the names of about 50 women he considered attractive, classifying them methodically as to their charms. One of the women was Mary Gherkin, who was stunned to read in the papers that her boyfriend was married. He would drive around in either a Packard or a Ford car and always have plenty of spending money. 
he would brag to her that he never went out without a gun, although Mary had never seen one. Another woman who Earl was seeing agreed to go with him to a dance at the Medina Michigan Avenue Club, but he had called her the day before to say that he was too ill to go. He then went with yet another girl and had a fabulous time. To an attractive girl employee of a concession, he gave a ring which police believed to be the engagement ring he had given his wife. This young woman, learning Earl was married, reproached him with the fact and he admitted it. Some of his girlfriends knew they were never going to be serious, but some others had declarations of love and even marriage proposals from him. Back in the day facts. Did you know that in the late 19th century, the 19th of April was celebrated as Primrose Day in memory of Benjamin Disraeli, first Earl of Beaconsfield, who died on this day in 1881. People were encouraged to pay tribute to the statesman, twice Prime Minister of the UK, by wearing primroses on this day. It was said that Disraeli was particularly fond of primroses, but his writings suggest the opposite. The myth seems to have its origin in a simple misunderstanding when Queen Victoria sent a wreath of primroses to Disraeli's funeral with a note stating that they were his favourite flower. People assumed that the word his referred to Disraeli, but in fact it referred to Victoria's late husband, Prince Albert. On the 20th of April in 1770, Captain James Cook first sighted New South Wales, Australia. On the 22nd of April in 1838, the British steamship Sirius became the first vessel to cross the Atlantic using steam power only. And on the 23rd of April in 1968, in the UK, 5p and 10p decimal coins were introduced in readiness for the official changeover to decimal currency in February 1971. I hope you enjoyed today's tale and a huge thank you has to go out to the guest voices today Russ from Infectious Groove podcast Zach from the Midwest Meltdown podcast and Frankie and Garrett from the Ever Trending Story podcast so once again thank you guys helping to bring this story to life. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at BacktrackerUK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background... That's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. 
So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.